You know that's the sound of another sale on your online Shopify store. But did you know Shopify powers selling in person too? That's right. Shopify is the sound of selling everywhere. Online, in store, on social media, and beyond. Shopify POS is your command center for your retail store. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify has everything you need to sell in person. With Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into one source of truth. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Connect with customers in-line and online. Shopify helps you drive store traffic with plug-and-play tools built for marketing campaigns from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. Get hardware that fits your business. Take payments by smartphone, transform your tablet into a point-of-sale system, or use Shopify's POS Go mobile device for a battle-tested solution. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash crimes, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash crimes to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash crimes. Hello and happy Monday, COJ fans. Before we get started today, I just wanted to update y'all on some breaking news. After we recorded this episode, Sandy Smith retained Eric Bland and Ronnie Richter as her attorneys. I will be participating in a press conference on the Bland Richter Facebook page with Sandy Smith, Eric Bland, and Ronnie Richter. That press conference will take place today at 8.30 a.m. Eastern Time, March 20th, 2023. I am so happy to share this news. And we will discuss details in this week and next week's episodes of MMP and COJ. Here is to hoping 2023 is Stephen's year for justice, finally. So cups up, everyone. Let's get into it. Cups up, guys. Cups up. How are you doing? How are you feeling, Eric? Kind of like I've been run over by a train. I, as you know, I got my knee replaced and, you know, everybody always tells you what to expect, but until you actually experience it, you don't really have an appreciation for it and everybody's different. I'm unfortunately in a lot of pain, but I'm taking some oxycodone. I feel a little kindred spirit with Alex uh, as I take my pills every day. We have so much to talk about today. And it's funny that now that we're two weeks out from the trial and just feels like that was the pinnacle of everything related to Alec Murdoch. But I was describing it to somebody on the phone just a few minutes ago that, you know, this person gave me a tip that opened a whole new door. And I'm not ready to talk about it yet, but it was like that spy movie where at the very end, the spies taken a rest because they finally saved the universe. And then they find out that the villain, you know, has a new shipment of uranium coming in. So it's like we're now in the uh, sequel por- portion of, I believe, our uh, Alec Murdoch coverage, and it's going to ramp up again. But first, I want to start by talking about Russell, uh, Russell Lafitte, and what happened last week. But specifically, I want to talk about the second motion for a new trial, Eric. They're basing this now, his second defense team, because as you guys know, his first defense team dumped him for not paying his bill. 
his second defense team has filed a motion asking to the judge to consider new evidence, which would be the Alec testimony exonerating Russell. Is do you think that's a smart move? Is that that's a good thing for that defense team to do, Eric? No. The judge is not going to reverse himself. He's not going to let that evidence in. Alec certainly uh, was available to testify. I, he, he was on a witness list. The government or Russell's team was probably told he was going to take the fifth. He's now a convicted murderer. His credibility is shot. He's admitted he lied. I just don't think that there's value in that testimony that the judge would condone opening up the record to put it on, you know, put it in the record for his behalf. I just think it's um, it's a grasping, desperate act. Do you think this is going to further upset Judge Gurgle when it comes to Russell's sentencing? Like, does this make him more prickly about the situation. It seems like they've sort of been trying his patience in the last few weeks anyway. Oh, yeah. I mean, like you said, if you read um, the footnotes in the original order, you know, he this isn't a tag team match. He quotes John F. Kennedy about, you know, critics. It's easy to be a critic, uh, except if you're the guy that's standing up. I think he's very upset at the position that Mark Moore is taking vis-a-vis uh, the original trial the decisions that were made on the night of the verdict. And I don't, I just think there's going to be a reckoning when the sentencing comes. It's going to be a, a hard reckoning. I'm not sure. Has he granted Bart's motion to be released? Yeah, he agreed with it, which, you know, validates, I guess, what they were asking for there. Mandy, do you think that Alec getting up on the stand would help exonerate? I mean, do you think that that's actually something that could possibly help Russell? No, it's insane. <laughs> <laughs> What do you really feel, man? Well, okay. Remember back in November, which feels like years ago, back in November, there was all this chatter of like, maybe we'll have Alex Murdoch take the stand for the Russell Lafitte case. And there was all those headlines that were like, Alex might take the stand, blah, blah, blah. And back then we were like, that's the dumbest thing. Like Alex can't, he has zero credibility. He has negative credibility. Like there is nothing that he could possibly say on that stand that could help anybody that was before he was a convicted double murderer like now his word is and lied on the stand and all these other things like it would honestly thinking about it i feel like it would make it much worse for russell because if you are a jury member and you're like you are having this guy (laughs) this is the guy to talk about how you're fine and everything there's something wrong here and you're even more suspicious. The evidence belies the attempt to use his testimony. The evidence shows that Russell had the last clear chance to say no on all these things. He didn't have to loan money to himself. He didn't have to loan money to Alex. Um, He never was able to prove that he had a reliance on counsel defense, that he was relying on advice that Alex had given him. So all of the the positives to get by putting Alex on the stand doesn't help him out because he had the last clear chance just to say no. But it, it really quick, isn't that like a good old boy thing that we're seeing over and over again? It's like there's a pile of evidence, but they think that they can talk themselves out of it. They think that like that that's what Russell did of like, I know there's a pile of evidence of, but hey guys, I'm going to hear to talk to you on Russell TV and tell you how it didn't really do it. 
And that's what Alex did too. And it's like a theme that we're seeing over and over. That's like, just because you say that it's true and there's all this evidence against you, you should just realize that there's evidence against you and realize that you cannot talk your way out of this anymore. Well, look, we know that he apologized to Corey and to Chris Wilson uh, in 2021 at, at, when he made that statement to Judge Lee. Not just apologized, Eric, but romantically apologized. He romantically apologized to them and in a way that he did not apologize, uh, at least publicly, to his family or the court or anyone else whose, whose time he's wasted because of his misdeeds. But to Chris and Corey, it was all X's and O's. But he didn't mention Russell. And then the fact is he could have testified at Russell's trial and he chose not to. And then when the devil's at the door in his own murder trial to just throw that gratuitously out that Russell was a victim and he did everything, it it just doesn't help. It was too little too late. But like Mandy said, the guy's got negative credibility, not just zero, but negative. Well, don't you think that that's so going back to that with the good old boys, sort of this is how they react to things. I just think that we see that in all facets of life, which is just members of this powerful group of people, whatever, however that manifests, whether it's uh, the Murdochs of Hampton County or the Kennedys, I guess, of Boston. Like there's just a certain group of people that are so used to uh, not having to answer to the same laws and rules as the rest of us. But also I do think that like when you see leadership, even at the basic level, like at your, at your workplace, there are individual members who sometimes go into things with that sort of mentality that if I say it's true, it's true. It doesn't matter that there's evidence to the contrary. It doesn't matter that that person's contradicted themselves. It doesn't matter that they have zero credibility. What is the bottom there? Like where, where does this, I mean, I guess we're in the bottom right now, right? Like see, we're seeing accountability start to happen and these guys are almost in denial about it. Alex clearly is. He, he thinks still that when he speaks, people will listen and it's got that force and authority that if I say that that Russell's a victim, he's a victim, like you said, despite what the evidence shows. And now he is the emperor without clothes. When he talks, it's just it's naked words. They have no meaning. They have no force and power. Yeah, it's um, it's up to people in his life to tell him he has no clothes on. And I don't think I'm seeing anybody in his life that's willing to do that. And I guess that's what we've been doing for the last year and a half. No, they keep fighting for him. Jim, Jim Griffin keeps giving interviews and and digs himself in a deeper hole and keeps fighting more and more uh, about his innocence. And he's picking Twitter wars with. Yeah, let's uh, talk about the Twitter wars. What is that about? Guys? It hasn't been with us. So that's been something I've been waiting for it. I kind of called him out on Twitter this morning. You did? I didn't see that. What did you say? Well, I called him out for the, the what we talked about in the episode of saying that like Sandy was like, he was saying Sandy was being exploited um, for that court TV interview. What do you mean by that, that she was being exploited? He wrote on Twitter, um, he was standing up for Buster and saying that it's wrong that all of this media keeps dragging Buster into this and saying, uh, and you're exploiting into, sh- who was that from court TV? Do you guys remember? Shanley Shaw paint is a painter. It's a really nice yeah, moment. She's cool. Yeah, I mean she's not doing it. And and it's very it's horrible to for Jim Griffin to assume that Sandy is being 
exploited when she's just telling the truth that she knows. And she's also not saying that she believes that Buster did it. She was saying, I just kept hearing over and over. And that's the truth. And that's what's in the case files. I got a newsflash for everybody. Sandy Smith isn't sitting by a phone and waiting for people to call her and say, do this, do that, do this. She's actually calling people on the phone. She wants action. This is a woman that wants action. She she isn't being exploited. She is speaking loud through a lot of different people. And clearly, it's time that a true investigation be done regarding the death of her son. And to say that uh, because we have a platform, mainly Liz and Mandy have a platform through MMP, and a GoFundMe page was started, that's not exploitation. That's using the power of the people. Right. And it's it's just wrong to assume that she is just some person that doesn't have a mind of their own and that could just be convinced by any media that any anything is true. Um, Sandy knows the case file is good as anybody or better than probably most reporters. Um, she knows like every single person. She knows the name. She can tell you their involvement. She knows it like the back of her hand. But that with Jim Griffin on Twitter really upset me because it's like, I don't know what's going on with him. And for some reason, unlike Dick, I just see that he has a little bit of good in him and that there's something off that I don't know. And I'm I'm seeing less and less good as his behavior keeps on going after the trial. Eric, is it normal? None of this is normal. So why do I even bother asking? But um, if you're a lawyer trying to get an, an appeal, should you be doing this on Twitter? You should not be uh, engaging in Twitter wars. You should not be going on TV and criticizing the government the jury and the judge, if you want a receptive ear from the appellate courts, the best recommendation is do your talking through your pleadings, do your talking through your briefs, and basically have no comment. But he's taking on everybody. He's taking on media. He's accused Sled in the interview with Court TV that somehow they may have the seafoam blue shirt and that they secreted it. He's criticizing a lot of different people and it's going to hurt his client. He remember, he still represents Alex and he's got an obligation to do what's in the best interest of Alex and getting on Twitter and, and getting on TV and slamming people is not in the best interest of your client. It's almost like what Jim is doing right now is a test of loyalty as opposed to an actual strategic way of getting the best outcome for his client at this point, maybe because there is no hope there. But you saw these sort of tests of loyalty and these sort of attorneys who I think maybe did it just didn't do things the way attorneys normally do them just all in. It's all for, as they say, an audience of one, right? I think it's an audience of one with Alec Murdoch because that's what when we're trying to make sense of what Jim is doing here, there's no category to put it in except for that one. He is appealing to an audience of one right now. Except Alex has no power. What is, why is Jim going this deep for Alex? He's got no power anymore. Well, this is a question that Mandy and I continue to ask ourselves several times a day. <laughs> so we literally, right before the show, we're asking each other that question. Unless he knows something, unless there's, like you said, unless Alex holds some uh, really good secrets in that vault and they want to protect those secrets. That's the only thing I can think about. Or there's more secrets. 
We'll be right back. Want to temporarily restore definition in your jawline where it's been lost over time? With Juvederm Volux XC, you can get a non-surgical jawline treatment that adds volume for smooth contour and to reduce the appearance of jowls in one in-office treatment with little downtime. Juvederm Velux XC injectable gel is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injections like redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people who had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Mandy, what are some of your concerns right now as it relates to the Stephen Smith case? And we talked a little bit about Jim's accusation that Court TV had exploited Sandy Smith, which is very patronizing. And, you know, we saw this last year on social media. There were people coming after you in particular, Mandy, about your relationship with Sandy and acting like Sandy had no agency in deciding whether, you know, who she wants to be, have a relationship with, who she trusts, who's, and it's just, you're basically stripping this person of her own free will when these people make these characterizations. But I will say, I mean, as far as exploiting, <laughs> what worries me with the Stephen Smith case is that there is this nature of a lot of people who uh, may be well-meaning or not well-meaning, but it's hard to know at this point that sort of come in from the outside or learning about the story now. And in some ways, maybe my fear is always that they're going to further complicate this investigation and change the direction of law enforcement. So not that I think that they're going to drop it. I don't. It's just we can we're going to talk about this later in the show about just the sort of how the public interfacing with an active case, how that can change things and affect things. So that's my concern. I didn't mean to cut off because I asked you that question first, but that's what I just to get the conversation started. Yeah. I mean, I mean, going back to what you said, something Sandy and I have related to and you too, Liz, of the last couple of years of just being betrayed by a lot of people. And it is extremely hard. I've realized that this 
whatever we're in, true crime, Liz, what would you call it? You're the magic word person. It's an access of evil of some sort. Like there's so many people that want to get closer to it who are bad, who are have nothing to do with the crime or anything like that, but just want to exploit other people and complicate things and get attention for it. And there's just a lot of bad people that I've come across in the last couple of years. And same with Sandy. And I'm sure you too, Eric, like there's just a lot of bad. I'm coming across them on TV. I've been on some TV shows where they're, they're factually wrong about, you know, that Alex called up Sandy and said that he wanted to represent her. Alex never called Sandy and they're, they're just wrong on basic material facts about the accident, about a wallet in his car, the gas cap being open. He had a phone. Why didn't he use the phone? Now they're saying, well, probably the cell towers didn't work. I mean, it's just pure, utter speculation that they're doing. And that doesn't do any good in furthering the legitimate investigation and what happened. Yeah, I saw a really dumb TikTok uh, a couple months ago, which I know (laughs) some TikToks are good, whatever. But there was one that was like focused in on the freaking paint chips of a car and saying it was connected to the Stephen Smith case, blah, blah, blah. He was not killed by a car. Like, there is no evidence of that. And the paint chips could have been from a freaking baseball bat or something else, and they were tiny. But it's people that haven't even looked at the file that are just going off of hearsay and then coming up with these crazy theories. And it's definitely complicated, and it's hurtful to to Sandy. Like, she calls me all the time saying, like, is this something, is this something? And it's like, no, this is just some lunatic on the internet who just found out about this. And so not only is it hurtful to the investigation, but it's hurtful to the victims. So I just would really like people to keep that in mind. And also when they're talking about the boat crash, all of these victims in the Satterfield case, all of these victims are victims and they did not choose to be here by any means. This is not their doing. This is not their fault. And people are placing them in these scenarios and their stupid little theories, like they're characters of a book, like what if she did this because blah, blah, blah. And it's just, it's hurtful and rude and horrible. I think that, there, there can be good evidence out there. If, if, if SLED wants to do it, they could get search warrants. I think the post-death communications on telephones is going to be very important because I think that somebody has talked about this in this Myrtle orbit. Not saying that, Alex, I'm not saying Buster, but in the orbit, I think the evidence that will answer a lot of questions isn't necessarily before the accident, but after the accident, if they were able to access these phones and and do a search warrant of communications, it may yield some very good evidence because people probably have talked over the last six years. And I think SLED should be pursuing that. What are your thoughts on the post-death evidence? Well, even pre-death, I mean, we never found out what was in Steven's phone. We don't know the last, like, real steps of his night. He was at school in Orangeburg and came back, but we don't know who he was hanging out with. We don't know who he was communicating with. The phone would have held so many secrets, and it's like it got shoved around from agency to agency, and then no answers. And By design. Right. It had to be by de- by design. And that's something that uh, if people haven't like read 
the entire case file from front to back. It's really hard to understand. And I was trying to articulate this on Twitter today because people want like a one sentence explanation as to why the Murdochs are, their names are involved in this. And it's just really complicated. But the, the biggest evidence that we have in the whole case is that something very corrupt and someone super powerful had to have interfered with it. Otherwise it would be complete police incompetence and like, that would make me worried for every case that the same police departments would solve. You know, like something had to have occurred. There was just too many. There was thing after thing after thing that went completely wrong on purpose. I think there are officers with the South Carolina Highway Patrol who hold the keys to this. They know what they were told by their superiors. They know what their chain of command, how their chain of command regarded this case. Those are things that are important to share with SLED. And if you have any shred of humanity inside of you, uh, you will do that. I say that to not just South Carolina Highway Patrol, but to the people in SLED as well, who this is the thing is like, I, I don't think that we've talked about this enough and maybe not even at all. I can't remember. But when after the murders, when SLED took the case, it's often been portrayed as reopened or they took over the case. But Sandy spent so much time trying to get SLED to take the case. They were the proper agency to have investigated that death from the beginning. I understand that there was some confusion and that happens on the crime scene where you're not really sure what a, an injury to the head means. Does it mean this person committed suicide? Does, is this a murder? Were they hit by a car? Uh, did they pay Cousin Eddie to shoot at them or not? Like You just don't know what that head injury is about. But they knew soon enough after that this looked like a murder and it felt like a hot potato that these agencies didn't want to deal with because of who was involved. Now, if we have people who are saying, well, the Murdochs weren't involved, well, explain to me that. Explain to me how in this file, not only are they mentioned so many times, but this agency that had no business investigating a murder ends up with this case and it languishes there. So SLED was supposed to have taken that case. SLED has many positive attributes. They've done a great job in, in so many ways. But let's face the facts there. SLED owes Sandy this right now because they should have had they involved themselves in 2015, we wouldn't be having conversations like Eric is having with us right now, which is these phones are important. So we need that data. And well, where's the data? So we couldn't even get Maggie's GPS because that data had been overwritten, again, as a result of an intervention by an, an agency that probably shouldn't have been involved, the 14th Circuit Solicitor's Office. So that stuff gets me very worked up. Um, and that said, it becomes hard, I think, for all of us, the three of us, to trust what we hear and trust that people have the best of intentions here when it seems so simple. It seems like there are people who could simply speak out and be brave and know that there's a community out there that will support you in your bravery by speaking out about what happened to Stephen. But also just what are people's intentions with Sandy? So Sandy is has raised money uh, to exhume Stephen's body privately uh, rather than rely on SLED to do so. Mandy, do you want to talk a little bit about that and just why that's important and, and the genesis of all of that? So Sandy realizes that Stephen's case had to take a backseat because simply because of agents at, at SLED. There's not enough. And as a lot of people don't realize, like 
Sled had a job to do before this whole Murdoch mess, and they could not possibly investigate all of these cases at the same time. That said, now that Maggie and Paul got their time and they got justice, she wants to start making noise. And no one just had bandwidth, and she realized that, Um, including me. I hated it, but there was just no – there was no room in the last few months for Stephen, but now everyone has room and space and energy and everyone wants to focus on Stephen. And the best way to do that, after a lot of long talks, I told Sandy, like, fundraise, if you don't worry about money, we can, people will help you with money. Like, what do you need? And what will be the good step for you guys in exhuming the body was what she's wanted. And I I felt bad because she'd always just kept saying like, but it's this much money and I'm worried about that. And it really sucks how much money can get you further in justice, you know, like having money to exhume a body and get a private autopsy is huge because it gives you power in a lot of ways. And it probably will show SLED that like the Smith family isn't going away anytime soon and they're trying to get answers. And she is doing an independent – and Liz, do you want to explain like why she's doing an independent autopsy and not – everybody keeps asking that. Right. And this is a question. First, I just want to say real quick though, Mindy, like yes, there has not been room for for us to go deep on investigating Stephen's case to the degree that we wanted to. But I honestly think that this murder case not only had to happen first because that's the way it went, but – now that it's happened, now that we've seen that a Colleton County jury agrees that a Murdoch did this, that opens so many more doors and gives a lot more incentive and motivation and just uh, optimism, I guess. So when law enforcement officers who might feel like the, the ones that are doing the job and doing well, they might feel that there was no hope before, and I'm hoping that this will give them some hope. But as far as the independent exhumation, this goes back to one, uh, obviously, trust in the system that Sandy has, the system has given Sandy no reason for her to trust it. So this is what makes the most sense. The second part of that is that one of the biggest issues in Stephen's case was the medical examiner report. And what we learned, what Mandy and I learned back in 2019, we met with a friend of ours who's an investigator, and he went over the autopsy with us. And the photos and the report, and he sort of explained how it worked. This this medical examiner, Aaron Presnell, who has connections with the Murdochs from what we understand, and connections with the 14th and what have you, because she is the medical examiner in Charleston and gets many of the um, suspicious deaths and what have you. She, based on the coroner's information, said that this was a death caused by a vehicle versus pedestrian. And it's those words that condemned Stephen's case to South Carolina Highway Patrol, whether or not Dr. Presnell realized that. But the problem is, is that the Highway Patrol came back to her and they said, that's not what this body tells us. And we are literally the subject matter experts in vehicle crashes as they relate to citizens in South Carolina. That is what they're trained in. That is, they have uh, teams all over the state. That is their specialty. They know what crashes do to bodies. They know what crashes do to cars. 
But she basically told them to pound sand <laughs> and get out of her hospital. And that, you know, she's telling, and then she even said something obnoxious, like, tell me what to write and I'll write it. Like, that's not the point, doctor. Like, the point is. Twice she said something obnoxious. Yeah. She said, the first time she said, that's your job to figure out, not mine, which is just so crazy. And you could tell in the reports the way that the Highway Patrol wrote it was just like, this is weird. This is so weird. See how something goes down a rabbit trail when it starts off with the wrong premise and it, it goes so deep that it almost takes it way past the time that you could do a legitimate investigation. It is, and it's exactly what happened because the the highway patrol was not there at the autopsy at the time to ask questions directly to her when she made that decision because they were told that it was not their gig. They were told that it was not a hit and run. So you guys, you boys can go home and then like thing after thing after thing was just interfered with and the investigation went completely sideways. Well, Mark Tinsley has said, as it relates to other things with uh, Alec Murdoch, that there are a whole lot of coincidences that always break in Alec Murdoch's favor. So when you look at this case, there are a lot of weird, and I don't mean coincidences necessarily, but like anomalies and what have you. There are a lot of little things that happen that break in Alec's favor. And that just, when you look at them in totality, it's not a natural break. But to sort of talk to, uh, I've been asked this so many times uh, over the last few weeks is why SLED doesn't exhume Randolph's body or check his casket for the weapons. And we've joked before, like, you better not be wrong if you're going to dig up Randolph Murdoch's body. You better not be wrong. But you can't just go digging up bodies. So there's a process and you have to get a judge to agree to this. Right, Eric? So there's going to have to be a court order, even in a private exhumation, that justifies that exhumation because we're not trying to disturb the dead. There has to be a good reason for it. I don't see any reason whether this would be held up for Sandy, but... The dead have an independent right to not be disturbed. So even if a family member or a loved one wants further answers, the, the court protects the dead. And so there has to be a, a real good showing on why a court should grant the ability to disturb the remains of someone who died. Because if that's the case, then everybody would be coming to court all the time and digging up somebody. And, you know, I want the jewelry. Somebody, she was buried with jewelry that should have gone to me. And you just go down bad, a bad rabbit hole there. That's really interesting. I never considered that, um, that the court protects the dead. And that makes sense, though, because if you want to be buried with your jewelries, you can't just go digging. So for Sandy, what is that process? Well, we would make a showing. We would bring in crime scene investigators, whether we go to somebody like a, a, a Dr. Kinsey or we, we get a similar credentialed person who would look at the evidence and give us an affidavit to say there are very curious circumstances that, you know, I've investigated hundreds of highway fatalities where pedestrians are hit by a car. And in 99.9% of them, this is what happens. There's a piece of the car that falls off. Shoes are blown off in 80% of them. Someone's, whatever the remains are in their pockets, are put out on the street. All these different things that would go into a good showing that the court would grant that permission to disturb the remains of somebody who died. 
again, it's not just Sandy's desire that will control the day because the court has a duty to protect Stephen. So can law enforcement piggyback off of what Sandy's doing in the sense that you're not going to want to exhume his body twice? So she pays for an independent exhumation and a medical examiner to do um, a second autopsy to the extent that they can. Can law enforcement then have their own person do it, or would they just use what, whatever the findings are that she she gets from hers? And so who we get, there's somebody in Greenville that I have in mind who is highly respected, that the government respects. Whoever's going to do this autopsy should be somebody that the government respects. And this person in Greenville has done exhumations before, correct? Yeah. Yeah, I think I know who you're medical talking about. school in Greenville, the USC Medical School. So if it's somebody that SLED has familiarity with and they've used before, then I think that they either will participate or they'll accept the findings. But if we go hire, you know, Dr. Vinnie Boombots, they may not put any credence into his findings or her findings. And that's another thing I wanted to bring up. Um, Sandy in our interview talked about that. It means so much for her. She wants that death certificate to say murder. She needs that. And I think that when we talk about how important validation is and how people like Sandy have been pushed around by the system and gaslit and just bullied, Sandy all this time has said, my son was murdered and she has not had a single document that says that. It's not solving it, but it's a big step for her. It's a big step because also, and I think we learned this early on about the family, Stephen would have had to have been dumb to walk in the middle of the road at that point and get hit by a car. Like he he would have had to have a death wish or just not paying attention or addled in some way. And by the way, his toxicology was clean. So, you know, he was fine. So the family doesn't want Stephen's memory or some action that he didn't do assigned to him. So the truth is he was murdered. The death certificate should reflect the truth. It's that simple. There's a dignity involved with it that I think until you talk to people, you don't realize what they're thinking. And when once we understood that, like this was a huge insult to the family, not only to have Stephen's death certificate reflect not the way he died, but for it to have been the result of his own actions when it wasn't. And the, and that's always been something that I point out to people. I don't think that the certificate will be changed to say murder unless there's a coroner inquest. What it could be changed to is death unknown or blunt force trauma to the head that was not caused by an automobile. I don't think they're going to go so far as to say murder unless there's a coroner inquest. But They could though, right, Eric? Because homicide is just means death by another. So homicide is one of the... It, it could. I'm not even sure what it says at this point. There, She had three. Do you remember the last one? They got the date wrong and one... It was crazy. I mean... Is that the one, Mandy, the one that I got from um, Andy Savage? He sent it to me? Probably. Uh, does it say vehicular? Yeah. It does. Yeah. There was three different ones. Which is curious in and of itself, right? Right. It's just another thing with this case. And it's it's one of those things that, like, I bang my head against the wall when people are like, I don't understand. Like, and it's like, it's just the everything went wrong in this case. And there had to have been someone powerful to make it go so wrong. And I don't know that many powerful people in Hampton who could do that. But I'm just... 
I, I can't wait to see the results, and I can't wait for the day that Sandy gets answered. Do you believe Stephen was romantically involved with somebody of power and prestige? I don't know, and I also don't know if – I think it might be a lot different than what we think it is. And I think that it might be not necessarily like a relationship, but some sort of a criminal ring that Stephen did not get wrapped – it not his fault for – entering but i think there's just a lot more there's something more nefarious happening there's there's just something going on where a lot of people do not want this case to be solved yes and i don't think it's drugs as we're hearing i don't i mean i'll I'll stand corrected if it is but i just don't i think that maybe that's an element of it in some respect but i think what we're finding out is it's going to be more i don't even know the word i want to use right now just more nefarious. Right. And I, I want to say this again, but like, Liz, you made a really good point about when we were investigating this in 2019 and several friends and family members of Stephen said over and over, he was not stupid. Stephen was smart. Yeah. And the conclusion that the highway patrol had to come up with was that he got hit by a truck mirror. Mm-hmm. In his face, which was just... It didn't make sense based on where he was standing. Right. You would see the headlights come. In. It's the craziest thing, but it, it's insulting. He never talked about suicide. He was very optimistic about his future of becoming a nurse and getting educated. He was very happy and excited about going away that weekend on vacation to go deep sea fishing. He had every reason in the world to live. So... He would have seen headlights coming. He was cautious by nature. He knew where he was. He would have called somebody on the phone to come get him, and he would have taken his wallet. Can we also talk about the gas cap? Mandy and I were talking about this the other day. His little yellow car was left on the side of the road, and somebody unscrewed the gas cap as a signal to passersby that he had run out of gas. Now, Stephen was a young man, and that feels like a very 1970s, 1980s way of communicating with the world when you didn't have a phone. So, like, what was he doing? Like, opening the gas to check it and be like, is there gas in there? I don't know. No. So whoever unscrewed that gas cap, and I don't like to say these things without having the facts, but... Visually, that's just not something people do unless they are older. Remember when we were younger, we used to put white T-shirts on your antennae when I was young. I had a 1967 Ford Falcon that had an antenna that come from the hood that came from the hood because of the radio. And if your car was broken down, you put a white T-shirt or something white on it to signify that your car had broken down. Nobody does that today because people have cell phones. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And I don't think we should also, I wonder if there's a way to check if people would know where his car was found at the time if it had cell phone service. Yeah. Because that would be the only, that would be the only reason. But still, because I did hear that people have said the the gas cap thing, people in rural community, it's an old school thing, but also like... Your your dad teaches you to do that if you grow up on the farm. Sure. Away from cell phones and things like that. But still. Stephen was used to operating, though, with little gas, remember? He he was very much go – like he would go from $20 bill to $20 bill when it came to filling his tank, much like 
every teenage boy I have ever known in my life as an adult. So remember that. Just, <laughs> well, like, yeah, just even my stepson, I just remember that always being a thing. It's just, you know, why aren't you filling up your tank? So um, yeah. Yeah, he had problems with that. And he had to drive to Orangeburg for nursing school a lot. So right. So just saying he has experience in probably running out of gas or, you know, so I don't know that that was his protocol. And I don't think that his sister would agree that that was his protocol. He would have just called her. Right. And I don't see, I do not see a scenario where Stephen, from everything that I know about him, would be driving home from something. And I feel like he would realize that he was running out of gas and call somebody. If the cell phone was dying, you would call somebody or you would hurry like i feel like he would have found a plan you know he would have stopped at the gas station and even if he didn't have money yeah right you'd stop at a gas station and call somebody something it just doesn't make any this the story of somebody just walking on the side of the road because their car broke down is so 1980 like it just doesn't happen can we talk about the coincidence of that though mandy that because what you just said just hit me and I know this has probably hit people before and I'm just coming to it but we have a victim with head trauma we have a victim who there's a there's an element of something on the side of the road a vehicle on the side of the road uh, a la the alleged roadside shooting we have a, a facade which is you know in the roadside shooting it was the punctured tire and this you have the gas cap out which might be a facade you have uh, things that just don't make sense when it comes to how the investigation was handled uh, in both the double homicide and this one. So again, like we're just ticking boxes, it seems, like in terms of what lawyers, I think Eric would call a common scheme. There's just elements here that just almost seem like a, a modus operandi, to be honest. Well, it seems to me that the government would like to get full closure on Myrtle. The worst thing that could exist for our state is there still to be open-ended questions about Myrdal-related matters. I think the state has every incentive in the world and every goal in the world to close every loop on Myrdal, the major loops. And this is a major loop. The fact that Randy Myrdal showed up to the scene, the fact that Randy Myrdal called Sandy Smith and offered his services to her. I'm sorry, the, the Myrdals just don't get the benefit of the doubt anymore. And these things are not just coincidence. They, they could have a nefarious spin to them. And I think the government should get closure on this. And it's also the oldest case involved in this too. Like these people have been waiting since 2015 for answers. And even, even besides the Murdoch connection, even if it has nothing to do with uh, the Murdochs, as Liz said, which this is a great point, SLED should have taken possession of that case a long time ago. It is a SLED case. It is not a highway patrol case. They owe that to Sandy, no matter what the connection is to Murdoch. So I just hope, 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 and I have faith that as many resources and as much time spent will really be dedicated to this and Finally, the Smiths will get the answers that they deserve. We'll be right back. 
calling all lovers of mystery. Prepare to don your detective hat in June's Journey, a free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. Take a trip in time to the glitzy 20s and play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. The thrill is endless with new chapters added weekly, allowing you to not only enjoy the detective adventure, but also to personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Shout out to Claritin for supporting this episode and providing us with samples. It has done wonders for our seasonal allergies. We recently started feeling the effects of spring. Luckily for those of us who live with the symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin Clear with Claritin D. Designed for serious allergy sufferers, Claritin D has two powerful ingredients in just one pill that relieve your allergy symptoms and decongest your nose so that you can breathe better. This double action combination of prescription-strength allergy medicine and the best decongestant available relieves sneezing, itchy and watery eyes, an itchy nose and throat, sinus congestion, and pressure with ease. Ready to live life as if you don't have any allergies? It is time to live Claritin Clear. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Ask for Claritin D at your pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to Claritin.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin Clear. Use as directed. Eric, you're saying that, you know, we don't want open-ended questions when it comes to the Murdoch stuff. And I think one of the open-ended questions that I fear could slip by all of us is the obstruction of justice investigation into Alec, his behavior surrounding the boat crash, his brother's behavior, calls they might have made, all of that. So my fear is that that's going to, they're going to think, well, Alec's in prison now. And so we don't really have to worry about that. But we do have to worry about it because we're talking about not just, you know, it takes two hands to do a handshake, right? So Ellick's hand, we already know, is not great. Who is, who's the other side of that handshake on all of those things? Uh, and then the other thing is just we don't know the extent that there might have been obstruction in the murder case. And before the charges, before all of this, we had heard that there were issues of, of obstruction of justice, per, like perhaps, that might come down the road. So we would like to see that too, because I think there are a lot of questions that were raised by some people's testimony. I think if we look at the Mallory Beach case, you know, they've been denied justice. The, the justice was going to come with Paul's uh, DUI boating trial, and Paul unfortunately got murdered. So what we didn't find out was the conflict that existed between DNR and some of the local agencies that investigated that boating accident. The beaches have not gotten their justice. Everybody's getting justice. And Mark Tinsley's going to get it in a civil realm. But Mallory's justice has not come yet. And there were a lot of questions that existed of obstruction of justice by Alex and his father at the hospital and by uh, turf wars, by local and state uh, investigative agencies, DNR and and the local um, uh, police force. And I think those things kind of fell by the wayside 
And they're very important because obstruction of justice is really something that goes to the heart of our system. We cannot have people of power and privilege uh, manipulating investigations or pushing law enforcement officers away from certain pieces of evidence. That cannot be done. Right. This really all hit me. It's like, as probably why I feel so like there's just so much to be done because Alex, like Alex is going to jail forever, no matter what. That's one person. That's great. That's accountability. That's awesome. But this is the system. This is the people that made Alex Murdoch that need to go down to. This is the people that helped them. This is the people who use their position of power and either looked the other way or helped him in his very horrific deeds. And that's how you change a system. It's not just put one person away for murder. It is get all of the rot out, including the Mallory Beach case, including, I mean, I, I was just another question dawned on me again, which is, why didn't Duffy's office, why did Duffy's office not have any knowledge of the way that he was abusing the badge the night of the hospital? And why weren't they deeply, deep, like, they should have known about that and they should have done something. Excuse me, but they did know about that because in 2019, we brought that up to them. And we were told that they'd never, well, we don't, we've never heard any of any incidents like that. Well, I'm telling you there are, like, that we're hearing that there are. So I don't know what internal investigation they did, if any, probably not any, but that was brought to their attention uh, right after the boat crash case when we started hearing that he was using his badge uh, to affect civil cases or to persuade people to do what he needed them to do. What are your sources telling you, ladies, about any grand jury investigation and obstruction of justice, either in connection with the murders or in connection with the voting act? Is there any uh, ongoing grand jury investigation in that. I've heard some rumblings on the street, but what are your sources telling you? Well, the things that I've heard are making me scared. So just that they that people within those circles believe that now that the murder's done, the obstruction stuff is not as important. And that is the opposite of what we believe for everything that Mandy just said, because it's it's the rot that's that's internal, but SLED, the South Carolina Highway Patrol, DNR, local agencies, they all need to have a real honest look at themselves. I know that it, it's not something that they want to do because this is the thing that's terrible is that we're not talking about people that are making tons of money at these jobs, as we've said before. These are people who rely on their jobs and rely on their paycheck. And it's not always fair that they're now entangled in whatever they're entangled with with Alec, but that kind of message that it's going to be okay, we'll just ignore it, we'll not, you know, we looked into it, but, you know, it doesn't seem they did anything, so we're fine. No, you need not work in law enforcement if you did something to help facilitate whatever Alex's unstated scheme was, or how do you trust law enforcement if you know that they're just... The dispensation that they gave to Paul after the police arrived on the scene and law enforcement arrived on the scene all the way through his arrest and, and his release on his uh, recognizance was was disgusting. I, I mean, I don't know any other word of saying it. There's no other kid that would get that kind of benefit but from privilege. It is repugnant what happened.
I do want to talk a little bit. Uh, you guys had uh, David had mentioned that people were asking about cold cases and uh, what they can do to help resurrect these cases in their own communities, or um, you know, I guess what what can they do to uh, make things move faster there. Uh, Mandy, do you have any advice for people? I mean, be pesky, but not don't be rude. I will say that there's like a there's a line. I I had to say this on Twitter yesterday because I get so many people who are like, I think you're the worst, but will you look into this case? <laughs> and it's like that's not how you get it. I think my thing is like. Don't be afraid to speak up to the system. Don't be afraid to make noise. And there is a lot more power in regular everyday people speaking up and demanding justice for something that is important um, than we think that there is. And the government belongs to us. We have to remember that. Do you guys remember that uh, movie, Three Billboards? Yes. Yes. Where the mom takes out the billboards and it just has like a very unsatisfactory ending because justice does not get served. That was a great movie. Yeah. What's her name? She's a great actress. Yes. I know who you're talking about. Frances McDormand. Frances McDormand. Oh, you're the best, Liz. Good job. Yeah. But that sort of, so I, I'm on the cold case committee technically for Beaufort County uh, and have been since 2018. And I haven't. Because of the Murdoch stuff, I have not been going to the meetings lately, but I will say this. So in Beaufort County, we're lucky enough that the sheriff's office has a cold case committee. And what that is, is a group of citizens, private citizens who are either former law enforcement, there's former prosecutors on there, there's former uh, medical examiners, I believe there's, or at least there was one. I don't know if he's still on there, but investigators from all these agencies in the area will come and present a case. And then this group of retirees uh, will then look at the case. They're allowed to ask questions, uh, do interviews, things like that. So if your area doesn't have a cold case committee, it might be something worth talking to your uh, local police agencies about, about like having one, because they might have a team of people dedicated to cold cases, but we all know that the Golden State Killer, a lot of that work, like work was done by um, Michelle McNamara and former law enforcement officers who were reinvestigating the case sort of on their own. So there is so much value in that. Smaller agencies don't always have the budget for cold cases uh, to do the DNA testing or to look at like uh, relook at evidence and such. So that's another way to be able to do that through the cold case committee. And I think the the other thing is we want you to be pesky, of course, but there's a fine line between interfering and an investigation. So we're just talking about obstruction of justice, but there's a fine line uh, between uh, helping and getting answers for your loved ones and then uh, stepping on the investigation in some way. And I've always said that law enforcement law enforcement officers need to be better about their bedside manner sometimes when their communication with victims just because they're not really putting themselves in their shoes and saying like, oh, I get it because I didn't, I haven't called them in a while. <laughs> they might want to talk to me. Uh, so that's another thing. We need to improve the communication uh, about these investigations. Wouldn't SLED say to assuage or give Sandy some answers without revealing where they're going? Can they, is there, can they bridge the gap and, and thread the needle by providing her with enough information to make her believe that they are doing something without revealing what they're doing. Is that done? I think some investigators are better than others. Uh, I, I largely, though, what I hear from victims in general is that they just don't get answers, whether it's from 
after an arrest or before an arrest that they're they're very much left in the dark and the retort to that has always been well we have victims advocates and we have this victims advocacy program well sure and that's great um but that's not that's not i think what victims are necessarily looking for like victims advocates are great at explaining the system and uh being there with the Kleenex and what have you during certain parts of the the case itself and they're not there over the entire case necessarily and and this isn't to just throw a net over all victims advocates but um just to say that they they perform a very specific role and i think that can get confused i also think that there's a lack of education about what the system is knowing the difference between law enforcement and uh, the prosecutors and what they do individually to a lot of people it's just law enforcement they're all the same i think that there needs to be uh, some sort of training uh, as it, as it relates to communicating with people who are going through trauma how can they instill trust in you if you're keeping them in the dark i do think that law enforcement i do think investigators could do better generally speaking when it comes to communicating with victims and it doesn't mean giving every little detail of the investigation or necessarily any investigation it's literally just letting them know that I'm still working on the case and I'm thinking about you making that call to them and just saying that hey whether it's monthly at first weekly at first quarterly as time goes on touching base and just saying there hasn't been any new movement have you heard anything because I think that that the number one complaint that I feel like I've heard both from outside and inside of a law enforcement agency is just lack of communication and just lack of feeling listened to. So those are things that I would say need to be improved. But yeah, uh, certainly, certainly they could do better in communicate. I don't, I don't know the level of communication with Sandy necessarily as it exists right now today, but I'm sure it could be more. I'm sure it could be better. Yeah, and I, I mean, I think that that would be, as we have talked about police reform, it would be great if they had more, not victim's advocate, but just to go between a person that could uh, just be a communicator between those two parties. I think that that would be really revolutionary because, I mean, I've heard that many times as victims, they're just like, I've heard nothing. I don't think, I mean, even if they could say, hey, I inter- this month we interviewed X amount of people, we got pretty far. I'll check in with the next month. And like you said, are you hearing anything new? Just basic communication and decency and getting a relationship built is so important um, when you're trying to find the truth and answers in situations like this. Well, I got some, I got the weirdest thing that happened to me, guys, that I think ever. And, you know, I'm a guy that believes in the cosmic universe and karma. So I chose to go to a hospital to get my surgery in Charleston. And there's a 400 rooms in the hospital. And I had to uh, do my first walk the night of uh, the surgery. And I go out and I take a left and Renee's walking with me with the physical therapist. And Renee's just stopped dead. And I see her eyes like Bugs Bunny. And I'm like, what, what? And she just, you know, she can't even get any words out. She just points to the sign of the room next to me. And believe it or not, a Murdoch was in that room. How is that possible, guys, in the universe that God would put a Murdoch next to me in, um, in the hospital? And that person was related to the Murdochs. Did you sleep that night? Yes. Yes. Well, everybody told me I should get a guard or whatever, but she was a lovely 85-year-old woman, so I 
I didn't feel threatened, but I mean, isn't that the weirdest thing in the world? Can you imagine that? No. That's a nightmare. That's a nightmare situation. (laughs) I would be there. I don't know what I would do. Well, guys, uh, that said, I think we've talked about a lot today. Uh, We did. We covered a lot of territory. We got a lot of exciting stuff, though, that's coming in the next couple weeks. Um, David and Mandy and Liz have been working with different guests and different things and we're we got some real exciting news i know that's going to come down on the uh horizon yeah uh some really fun guests i can't wait to announce and uh stay tuned stay in the sunlight and we're adding stay pesky to that because that's an important it is an important message stay pesky but don't be annoying yeah don't be annoying <laughs> cups down eric feel better i hope that you guys are so nice. I appreciate it. Yeah, I feel better. You did great. The show must You're a go champ. on. Yes. The show must go on. I love it. All right, guys. Cups down. This Cup of Justice episode is created and hosted by me, Mandy Matney, with co-host Liz Farrell, our executive editor, and Eric Bland, attorney at law, a.k.a. the Jackhammer of Justice. From Luna Shark Productions. (laughs) 